Hey, Sanctus Church, welcome to week three in this very amazing, very different summer series, exploring the icons of our faith. Let me just do a small recap, even though we're only three weeks in. So this summer, we're exploring all the key Christian symbols, where they came from, what they mean, how they point us and build us up in our faith, but also how they become a magnetic point to invite other people into relationship with Jesus. And I hope that you found it really not only intriguing, but good. Because this has been connecting us to the global church. We're reminded that Sanctus Church is just one of hundreds of thousands, millions of churches that use these symbols. And then we're being connected to the historic church. We're reminded actually we're not better than our ancestors. Actually, we need to humble ourselves and learn from them because they've gone before us. And we've been refocusing and hopefully being refreshed that the good news is good for us. Yeah, we might be Christians, and yes, we might have the good news, but we need to hear the good news again and again. And by the way, if you're a seeker here today, or a skeptic, or if you're not a Christian, or you're Christian-ish, you're being invited to explore what Christianity is and what it's not. And, and, And remember, we're starting with some images but the images aren't actually the real thing. They're the doorways. They're, they're not the thing. It's the person that they represent that can radically change your life in the now, not yet, that matters the most. My dad is a fine artist. I grew up in a family where I know the difference between tangerine and orange. I know the difference between blue and turquoise. That's just what happens when you live with a fine artist. And he's actually quite good at what he does, and his paintings are worth quite a bit of money. Now, it's interesting when you talk to people who love art, they love the paintings. They, they want to own the paintings and sit with the paintings and reflect on the paintings. But if you really love art and you really listen to people who love art, they want to meet the artist. What inspired them? Why did they choose that palette? What was going on in the mind of him or her as they did this thing? That's actually what we need to keep at the forefront of this series. See, this is all about the person that these things represent. Don't just get stuck with the art, though beautiful and amazing and useful. Meet the artist. Now, today we're going to explore another very old symbol. Maybe you've seen it. It's been done in paintings and stained glass windows and wood carvings. It's making a huge comeback right now online and on TVs, on t-shirts that is. And it's used in posters and famous mosaics have it. And Sunday school material probably has had it for generations. It's called the Victorious Lamb, or you might know it as Agnus Dei. Around 500 AD, this was the Christian symbol. And why is it great? Because it actually brings the whole of the gospel into one place in one picture. Now, we're going to put this up here now. This is the traditional view of it. Jesus is the lamb, and he's holding this banner, which represents Jesus's victory over death. The banner is made up of what we call the Latin cross. The Latin cross doesn't have Jesus on it because it's empty, because he's overcome death. It points to physical resurrection. And think about it. Lambs are weak and humble, and vulnerable, and not powerful, but that's the point. See, in a Christian worldview, meekness and humility is where God's power is really found. For 2,000 years, the Lamb of God, this victorious Lamb symbol, has represented Jesus as suffering servant and victorious, triumphant King. Now, he's standing with that cross and that banner, which again is the grand declaration that he's overcome death, sin, and Satan by his physical resurrection. This is one of the most important symbols we have, and actually one of the most versatile. I think it should make a comeback even more. But its roots are in a time when there were no roots. (laughs) See, this image actually has its foundation in what we call eternity past, in the very heart of God. This was always the plan. Listen to this really confusing, profound verse out of Revelation 13.8. The Lamb 
who was slain from the creation of the world. See, our salvation was a decision within God, within his inner life, within the Trinity, before time existed, before the world was, before sin was, before Satan was. The sacrifice was already in God. It was Jürgen Moltmann, that famous German theologian, that said, no trinity is conceivable without the Lamb, without the sacrifice of love, without the crucified Son. For he is the Lamb slaughtered, glorified in eternity. So you start in eternity to pass, before time was, and then the image comes into focus for the first time on the ground in the book of Genesis. The sign gets its meaning on the ground in the story of Abraham. Now, we were in this exact part of the Bible last week as we were looking at the image of the anchor. God gives Abraham and Sarah their own biological son. Abraham already had another son, Ishmael, but this is the, his own biological son with his wife. And so this is an answer to prayer. And then God asks him to sacrifice his only son. Genesis 22, 6, Abraham took wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and, and he carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went up together. Isaac spoke up to his father, Abraham. Father, yes, my son, the fire is here and the wood is here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, we've done this so many times before. I mean, where's the offering? We've got the tools and the fire, but we always give God our best. We always give something good to God. Where's the lamb? We always give him a lamb. Dad, where's the lamb? Can you imagine the moment, the next words uttered somewhere between confident, faith-filled excitement and bravery and then fear and trepidation and loss? I wonder if Abraham thought at this moment, this is way more than I signed up for, God. I mean, this journey is sadness and this is just so hard. I've already given up my family in, in the sense of my parents. I've given up my gods. I've given up my ancestral blessing. I gave up my nation. And by the way, I even gave up my inheritance. I've given up everything. I've even given up my firstborn son. And now you want to take him, Isaac, also? Have I not given you enough, God? How much more do you want from me? And yet notice what Abraham says in verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them uh, went on together, and when they reached the place, God told them about Abraham built an altar, and there he arranged wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Get on the altar, Isaac. What? Dad? Get on, the, get on the altar. Dad, where's the lamb? Just get on the altar. But you said God would provide the lamb. He's going to, but you still have to get on the altar. Why are you doing this to me? Well, God has actually told me to do this. And so here's the striking thing. He laid him. He arranged him. He laid him out. He set him up and put him into place. Now, I want you to recall this. You might not know this. By this point, Abraham is way more than 100 years old. And Isaac is somewhere between 10 and 30 years old. And so Isaac could have kicked his father, pushed his father, ran away from his father, killed his father. But wildly, Isaac lays down, submits to his dad. Well, then Abraham reached out his hand, verse 10, with the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. God was never going to let Abraham kill Isaac. This was a test. It's moving from intellectual knowledge, I believe, to experiential knowledge. I intellectually know and I experientially know, which is true knowledge. Well, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns 
And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a bird offering instead of his son. So God himself provides, notice this, the surrogate, the substitute, the alternate, the holy stand-in. He provides a scapegoat, something else to take the place of his son, to give God glory, to keep worship going, to deal with sin, to keep the relationship intact. Well, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. This is a new name, by the way, in the Bible for God. It's also translated the Lord who sees. And I love, I don't know who said this, but notice, it doesn't say this is a place where Abraham was faithful or brave or obeyed or the epic Abraham. No, no, this is the place where God provided, where God sees. Now, do you see the connection? You probably don't. I didn't. Now, I don't know if I wrote this years ago or someone else did. I just want to be honest about this. But this very spot where Abraham and Isaac are standing, this is where Jerusalem will be built in the future. And on this very mountain is actually at the center of Jerusalem where the temple is going to be built. And actually in this very spot is where the Holy of Holies will be built, where God will meet with his people one-on-one and the sacrifices will take place. This is the greatest foreshadow of what is to come. See, did you catch it? God sends Jesus, his only son, his son he loves, to die in this very place. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his, on his son Isaac's back. And the cross was placed on Jesus' back. And Isaac carried the wood up the hill. And Jesus carried the cross, oh my goodness, up that same hill. And Abraham carried the fire and the knife, just like God the Father would do with Jesus because he was going to die for us. And Jesus was bound to a tree like Isaac was bound to an altar. And it says, if you read the story, Abraham, Abraham's journey with Isaac took three days and Jesus would be raised in three days. And Abraham said to the servants, if you read the story, not I, but we will come back to you. And Jesus said to his followers, I will come back to you. And see, here's the point. God stepped in and gave us a substitute. This is what Jesus did. He sacrificed himself and was the substitute. All the nations are blessed through Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is what? The victorious lamb. Later in Egypt, God's people are slaves to Pharaoh, and he won't let his people, God's people go. God tells him, let my people go. He won't. All these plagues are given. And then the last one is that the firstborn of every single person in Egypt would die. But for protection, God told his people, under his direction, to take a perfect lamb, kill it, and smear the blood over the doorpost of each home. This became the Passover lamb, whose blood became a sign of protection. So when death came, death had to pass over. It reads like this in Exodus 12, 7. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So an unblemished animal, no defect, no disease, it must be perfect, given to a holy, perfect God. It represents a life laid down, one taking the place of another, taking place of what is deserved, And so when the angel of death came to that house and saw the blood, death was forbidden to enter because of another person's work. Death has to pass over because of the lamb. Jesus is the Passover victorious lamb. Death is not allowed to enter in. It does not own. It must pass over in the truest sense. Well, later on that very spot where Abraham started in the temple, A lamb was sacrificed every morning and every evening, and it was called a guilt or sin offering. And by the way, just as a side note, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Isn't it amazing if you're a Christian that you know his mercies are new? What? Every morning. See, when you wake up, the blood of Jesus covers you. When you go to bed, the blood of Jesus. Morning and evening sacrifice, always done by who? 
Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate culmination of all these great acts of faith and rituals found within holy history. When Jesus was 30, he starts his ministry. His cousin is John the Baptist. And how does Jesus' introduction of the world begin? It reads like this in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, all this stuff happens. And later, this symbol, this truth, is the very place where the good news moves from Jewish people to people from every background. After the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church is born, there's revival, there's persecution, and there's a guy named Philip. And Philip plants the very first seed that starts the very first church on the African continent. The Holy Spirit gives him a very direct call. We read about it in Acts 8.27. Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this man is Ethiopian from the kingdom of Moro, which today is modern Sudan in southern Egypt. Now, he's not Jewish, but he's a man of incredible power. He's the CFO or the CEO of one of the wealthiest nations on earth. It was famous for being an ancient trading post during the Roman time. It was known for incredible wealth because of gold reserves and iron. And this guy is the head financial officer for this nation. Now, interestingly, he's not Jewish, but he's gone to Jerusalem to worship the Jewish God. He is what they called a God-fearer, one who knows God from a distance. He's well-educated. He's a pious figure. He wants to worship the true living God, even though he's part of a pagan system and serves a, a queen and a king that have nothing to do with this faith. And actually, in this country, at this time, the king was considered a god himself. Well, after worship, he's reading the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit tells Philip to go speak to him personally. Acts 8.30, then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a lamb, like a sheep to the slaughter, and a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, he's deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Well, he's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Some of the most important verses about the whole Old Testament finding their fulfillment in the Messiah, who we, of course, know as Jesus. This declaration is that the Messiah had to be innocent, that he'd be the righteous sufferer, and he would be the one that deals with the world's sin by taking the place of every sinner. Innocent, but substitute. The deserved wrath of God would be placed on him. He is the lamb slain, and then the victorious lamb. Well, it says in Acts 8.34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or somebody else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, never forget this. Without one word of the New Testament written down yet, Philip knew that Jesus was the one who'd already done this great work. He knew that Jesus was the key to understanding the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He's the hope of the world. He is the essence of this passage. It's Jesus, the righteous sufferer, who had been falsely accused, deprived of justice, silent at his, at his uh, 
at his court, at his court date, crucified, risen, brought victory over death, sin, and the demonic. And now through repentance and trust in him, forgiveness is given in his name. Well, Acts 8.36, as they're traveling along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why should I not be baptized? The response is, I want to give my life to Jesus and get baptized. There's no class. There's no let's wait a year to see if it's legit. He says, I'm a follower of Jesus now. And so it says in Acts 8.37, as you believe with your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he baptized him. And that man went home, and then you can trace the Ethiopian church right to this person today. And the gospel continued to spread over the next decade. In the next decade, more and more people, Jews and non-Jews, slave and free, women and men, started actually meeting together, encountering the living God, being profoundly changed. And Paul was writing to one of those communities in a place called Corinth. And they had met Jesus and they loved Jesus and they'd been transformed, but actually they looked more like the city than they did like Jesus. And actually they were living a double lifestyle, which was really wrong. And so he comes back and he says, you know what, if, if Jesus has, has really impacted your life, if you've expected, accepted his replacing work, if he's your Passover lamb, if he's your offering to deal with guilt morning and evening, then you actually have to fundamentally look different and live different and think different. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, unholiness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, don't forget how much has been done for us. We were in bondage. We were enslaved to sin. We couldn't say no to sin. We were possessed by Satan positionally. We were all owned by him. And we all had fear of death. Like either nothing was existing after death or if there was, it was terrible. We would never see relatives again. He says, we've been liberated. Why are you going back to Egypt? Why are you going back to the bondage you've been set free from because of the victorious lamb? Celebrate your freedom in Jesus by saying no to sin, not yes to it. Celebrate your freedom in Jesus by not ignoring sin, but resisting it. Don't celebrate your freedom in Jesus by saying, well, I know the Bible says that's sin, but I feel it's wrong. Or No, 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 no. Live a holy life. Years ago, when we were as a church still called C4, we had a whole theme about pilgrimage one year. And I love these words we used. We are pilgrims on a journey. We will not settle for what is common or just good. Our standard is righteousness and love and purity and holiness, consecration and obedience. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. I love how the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to make a corrective right here. He's saying, look, the church is called to be pure. We need to look like the lamb, act like the lamb, think like the lamb, live in the life of the lamb. But that's not an excuse to become an isolationist. No creating little subcultures where we feel comfortable because everyone looks like us, smells like us, thinks like us, because we're all little Christians. He says in verse nine, listen closely, after connecting us to the lamb, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. He's talking about in the church, by the way. Just sit with that for a moment. But not at all meaning all the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. In other words, he's saying, look, Corinth needs Jesus. 
the victorious lamb. They don't know it, but they need him. And Durham, oh man, does Durham need Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And man, does the GTA need Jesus, the victorious lamb. But he's like, you can't be light if you're never in darkness. And you can't be salt unless you're among rotting meat. And, and you can't shine when you're always just in a room full of light. In other words, no separation, no hiding, no running, no holy huddles. One of the most disturbing things is we're harder on non-Christians or people of other faiths because they don't look like us and act like us. But how in the world do you expect a non-Christian or another person from another faith or a spiritual person to act like a Christian when they don't love Jesus and they don't have God's word or they don't believe God's word and they don't have the spirit of God even to give them the ability to do it? Why in the world would we as Christians expect them to act like Christians? Actually, we should be harder on ourselves. The judgment belongs in the house of God, from what I've read. We're called to be distinctively different than the cities we love and live in. We're to call them to Jesus, but they can't act like us until they encounter the Lamb. Now, let me tie all this up. From eternity past, to Abraham, to the tabernacle, and then the temple, to John the Baptist, then to Philip, and Philip to Paul, we end where we begin. Why have Christians cherished this symbol so much? for 1,500 to 2,000 years. Why is actually this symbol one of our most used? Because of how the story begins and how the story ends. Jesus met his best friend, John, in the book of Revelation. He writes it down. In Revelation 1, 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I have overcome all things. By the way, Hades is not hell. Uh, lake of fire is hell. Hades is the place of waiting. If you read the Bible, it says that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time. See, Jesus is saying here, I have not only just overcome death, I actually have the authority and power to judge people and send them to eternal death, but I also have the power to save people from death. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm supreme over all things, uh, all creation, seen, unseen, past, present, future, the now and what is to come. I hold the keys. What doors I open can't be closed. What doors I close cannot be open. And I am actually alive. Well, later John gets a glimpse of glory, of the heavenlies. And, and we're taken back to the beginning of time and then the end of time. Because in the middle is a lamb slain. And at the new heavens and the new earth, what's at the center of this renewal is the lamb. Revelation 5, 6, and then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and opens its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Jesus is our replacement. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our offering to deal with sin morning and evening. Jesus is life and Jesus is ministry and Jesus is teaching and Jesus is death and Jesus is glorious resurrection dealt with it all. Now, if you're a seeker or a skeptic or spiritual or Christian-ish, or you come from another faith, maybe you're a Buddhist or maybe you're Jewish or maybe you're a Hindu or a Baha'i or Wiccan, this brings home two very important things for you to wrestle out. The physical resurrection of Jesus and the offer of God's love called grace. Remember, this whole symbol is about victory over death. So what is the living God of heaven and earth saying to you today? Well, the resurrection of Jesus, 
the real physical resurrection is the jugular of our faith. It's the heartbeat, the hope. We believe it's rooted in history. It's central. It's our everything and it's deeply personal. It's hope giving, hope assuring, hope establishing. But this whole message I've given you today and this symbol simply points out that the physical resurrection of Jesus is a fact. And there are consequences in this life and the life to come on how we deal with that. It was Tim Keller that brilliantly said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, don't worry about anything he said. So what do you do with the idea that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was physically risen from the dead? By the way, I usually do this at this moment. If you are intellectually struggling, how is that historically verifiable? We did a series years ago called Smoke and Mirrors. It's online, on our website, on our podcast. Go back. It walks through the case for the historical resurrection. But actually, what's even more concerning, more offensive, is not just Jesus coming back from the dead. It's actually grace. Someone else making you right. Why did Jesus choose to be slain for you in the first place? And what do you do with God's love for you? I was reading a story uh, just this week about a man in England. He was uh, from India. He immigrated to the UK. And he wrote this in his story. He said, listen, I'm the son of a Hindu priest who himself was a son of a Hindu priest. I moved to the UK and I was in a working class English town where I grew up. And my life revolved around a close-knit Indian community. Classic immigrant story. We regularly met in temple and public halls to celebrate religious festivals and holidays. Never once in my first 18 years did I hear the good news about Jesus. My understanding was always, if you were a Christian, you were white and British, and no one suggested otherwise. He goes to university as the story goes on, meets all sorts of different Christians, understands a little bit more, and begins to argue with them. And this little section brings home what I'm trying to get across to you today. He said, you see, there was one roadblock on my journey to understanding Christianity. One concept that, in my view, was immoral and unacceptable was the idea of grace. The notion that someone else's suffering and shame and pain for the wrongs I had chalked up upon was absurd to me, actually repugnant. To me, grace and karma were complete opposites. He's correct. Karma is logical. Karma feels right. You get what you deserve. It's fair. This attitude persisted in me for quite some time until one of my friends, Alex, commented thoughtfully, hey, Chris, you can argue forever about the unfairness of the cross. Actually, in many ways, you're absolutely right. Or you can just accept that this man, Jesus, died because he actually loves you. It's just up to you. See, what this little symbol does to you is it points out that the resurrection of Jesus and grace are the entrance points to relationship with God. They are the essence of our faith. One man who met the risen Jesus and also needed so much grace was Paul. He once murdered Christians, jailed Christians, then met Jesus and became one of our greatest leaders. And this is what he, he wrote down. This was his experience and this is God's invitation to you in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have never, ever embraced the good news of Jesus, and you're going to humble yourself and admit your profound religiosity, 
or your secularism or your spirituality or your education, whatever you use to fill your life and give you meaning and purpose is not enough, and you realize that you need a substitute and a savior, then you just pray this. Wherever you might be in the world today, you say, Dear Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sin, and you physically rose from the dead. I turn, my, I turn from running my own life and trusting in what I do and who I am, and now I ask you to run it, and you be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and live in my life. I trust you and I'll follow you as Lord and Savior and King. You are the victorious lamb. Would you take everything you've worked for and done and give it to me? In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Now lots of us listening to this or watching this, (laughs) we said this a year ago, a month ago, 10 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, and we're followers of Jesus. How does this ancient symbol help us? Well, let me tell you, it really does. Because the symbol of the Lamb gives us freedom not to give up and not to give in. I said this a few years ago, I want to say this again. Many of us, even as Christians, fear the journey towards death, and we fear death itself. Most of us want to lengthen our lives, be more fit, more beautiful. That's why the cosmetic industry is so massive. Our culture hates aging. The loss of use, the loss of beauty, the loss of energy, the loss of dreams we want to deny, we want to fight against, and we want to avoid the great truth that we just are fragile as humans. The struggle with aging is directly connected to knowing that it leads somewhere called death. Our culture wants to avoid the journey towards death. This is why we're so busy and so entertained, so so we don't face what comes. And then, even as Christians, sometimes we're fearful of death. We're not sure what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and what's lying beyond. And yet, here's the good news you must be reminded. This image reminds us of the good news that Jesus actually rose from the dead And you don't need to be consumed about fear on the journey towards death or dying itself. It's okay to age. It's okay to have loss. It's okay. You don't need to keep working so much or keep up to be young. Healthy, yes, but don't fear the journey. Why? Because Jesus promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. That's true at every age and stage of your life. And he's not going to leave you just before you die and when you die and after you die. We don't need to fear. And our lives should not be consumed by fear. Because we're infused by hope. We're infused and transformed and restored because of the resurrection of the Lamb of God who's slain. Our bodies are not to be escaped, but embraced. Remember what we learned years ago to 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body's sown perishable. It's going to be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's broken. It's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time trying to dull yourself on the journey. It's okay. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has got this. Don't waste your life trying to hold on to something you can't. Here's the other reason why this matters. This symbol gives us hope in the darkest and most painful of times. Paul, one of his earliest writings is 1 Thessalonians. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words in chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed 
about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. Funerals are brutal. They suck, they're terrible. But they're homecoming for Christians. Do we grieve? Yep. Are we sad? Yes. Are we allowed to question? 100%. Do we get angry? Allowed to be angry? Just read the Psalms. Scream and yell. All good. But we don't grieve the same because we have hope. And we have to live in and under and with the hope again and again. We can show our neighbors and friends and our city, and we can confess and we can share and point out that as one famous theologian once said, the worst thing is actually not the last thing. The worst thing is not the last thing. Because the Lamb of God has done everything He has done, the end result is a restored heaven and a restored earth and creations made right. And what's the description of that? Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Lamb of God reminds us that God loved us even before. The Lamb of God reminds us that someone has taken our place. The Lamb of God reminds us we got covering in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. The Lamb of God reminds us He takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God reminds us His love is for all nations, not just one. The Lamb of God reminds us we're called to live distinctly different life. The Lamb of God reminds us that actually all things are going to be made right. The Lamb of God, the victorious Lamb, reminds us sin, death, and the demonic don't have the final say. The Lamb of God reminds us we're His. So, in the name of God the Father, in the name of God the Son, in the name of God the Holy Spirit, one God. Thank you, God, that within yourself you decided to love us, knowing we would sin. For those who have not embraced you yet, we just pray, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit, show people their sin, their need, make them thirsty for something beyond what they have. Show them the beauty, the glory, the power, the majesty of Jesus. And may they be saved. And for us who are Christians listening to this at Sanctus Church or beyond, here's my prayer. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and reveal any place where we are wasting our time on this journey, being afraid of death or being afraid of death itself, and just rip out fear from our church. Help us not to waste money and time in things that actually are trying to hold on to something we don't need to. And for those who are grieving, and it's genuine, Holy Spirit, at this moment, comfort them and remind them we don't grieve like the rest of the world does. And lastly, we just end this message by celebrating. Thank you that death doesn't win. Thank you that sin doesn't have the final say. Thank you that Satan's back has been broken. Thank you that we're free. Thank you that the victorious lamb is the one who owns us and loves us. And we all said together, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>